Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's podcast carries on where we left off after the State of the Reinsurance Market special episode, which was released after the Monte Carlo Rendezvous of 2023. At Monte Carlo, what everyone said they wanted after the great reset of a year ago was orderliness. Buyers and sellers alike wanted a period of rational calm after the storm, which could be used to clear up some of the debris and to rebuild strained relationships. Although they were loath to say it out loud, reinsurers were happy with where they'd got to on attachment points, but had found a new thing to worry about in casualty, particularly any US casualty that had suffered from prior year deterioration in 2023. In the end, calm and rationality is what everybody got. Reinsurance, capital, profitability and, crucially, confidence all recovered, and we ended with a largely flat renewal overall. The aim of this podcast is to see how this bodes for the year ahead and the longer-term strategic direction of the reinsurance market for those who work in it, buy from it and invest in it. The big question is how long can the good times last for the newly reset and now highly profitable reinsurance world? Have reinsurers hauled themselves up to a peak only to start sliding quickly down the other rock face? Or have they scaled up the side of a ridge onto a new, highly profitable plateau upon which they will stay encamped for as long as they can? To help me answer this, I've been able to speak to representatives from three of the top four reinsurance broking groups. David Preeb, chairman of Guy Carpenter, and James Vickers, chairman of Gallagher Re, are two of the longest-serving senior executives in the business. And David Flandreau, head of industry analysis and strategic advisory at Howden Tiger, is one of the sector's longest tenured analysts. They've all been providing insightful commentary on the industry for longer than I've been an insurance journalist, and I've been interviewing them for almost 20 years. A quick note, you must read Gallagher and Howden's 1-1 reports and Guy Carpenter's commentary as an essential accompaniment to this podcast. They're hugely informative and insightful pieces of reporting and are wholly complementary to each other. Links to these are in the notes that accompany this podcast. I really had fun with these three interviews and the subsequent time spent blending this highly accomplished and eloquent trio's thoughts together. It was a bit more work than usual, but I think it's a good value-added exercise and I hope you find it as useful as I did. Enjoy the podcast. So what happened? Let's let our three experts set the scene. It makes most sense to start with David Flandreau because his view gives the biggest macro overview of where we are. The renewal this year was in the main or in large part a story of supply. And actually the story of capital supply over the last 24 months has really been quite extraordinary. If you rewind back to year end 2021, we had a completely different interest rate and inflation picture. We had a totally different asset side picture. Pricing was completely different. You could argue even our understanding at that point or our assumptions around exposure were quite different. Last year, we had the biggest drop since the early 80s in the stock market and the bond market. And that asset side story in the reinsurance sector is something that doesn't get told enough. Capital fell by 17% in 2022. In 2023, we think that it's almost fully recovered. And that is just so important to note because that recovery has been a function of at least two things. First, the yields on securities that insurers invest in have 
started to moderate, and that means that capital supply in terms of traditional capital has begun to increase, balance sheet capital. The other thing that's been happening, though, relatively quietly and not with as much fanfare as in previous market inflections, is that capital supply has been entering the sector through the ILS market, through the collateralized market, through the retro market, through the ILW market to a smaller extent. And all of that together means that capital has risen back to levels where it was. At the same time, premiums, and premiums are a function of reinsurance pricing, among other things, premiums have also risen rapidly to the point where they kind of match capital. So going into the renewal, supply and demand were relatively finely balanced. And if you had that information three or four months ago, it was relatively easy to predict what was going to happen at this renewal. And what happened was a fairly finely balanced renewal, but was very much driven by supply and demand as much as it was driven by catastrophes, retention levels, attachment points, and placements. And so I think that being able to understand that capital supply is just crucial in knowing what's going to happen in reinsurance renewals. It's a bit of a school draw. You're saying flat. Flat, yeah. If you were forced to characterize the renewal in one way, then yes, you could say that, especially if you're looking at it relative to last year. I mean, last year, we had 37% risk-adjusted rate online increase in global property cat. This year, we're essentially arguing, is it a black zero or is it a red zero in terms of risk-adjusted, non-loss-affected worldwide? And so it feels, in a sense, although it's a completely different market, it feels, in a sense, like we're arguing over decimal places, kind of like we were at 1-1-2019, for example. Sorry the audio wasn't great there. That's me at the end suggesting to David that the renewal was a score draw, or in other words, flat. So, the big picture is all about capital and supply recovering, and coming back into balance with demand. And we're having an academic debate about decimal places on rate, when last year it was 37 whole percentage points on property cat. Let's ask James Vickers to explain how this played out on the ground. The word that's been very widely used to describe this season is orderly. But what does actually orderly mean? And I think what it means in this context is we've got to return to the more traditional approach of a renewal. In other words, reinsurers engaging early with brokers and clients, coming up with their quotations in a fairly prompt way, a reasonable negotiation around those quotes, firm orders being given, and following markets being prepared to follow in a fairly smooth basis. As a result, virtually all the renewals all completed in time by the end of December. A lot of differential terms that had come in over the last year or two have been squeezed out. I'm not saying they're not still some on some placements, but they've been greatly reduced. And the whole process, the expectation management of both the reinsurers and the buyers has been easier, certainly for brokers to manage, and there's been a lot less stress in the system. Why has that been? I think it's a combination of factors. The key to it, I think, is that reinsurers' confidence has grown a lot more. If we go back 12 months, there was, I think, a degree of fear at that time. Results, five years of poor results, very difficult to judge how far the market would move. Reinsurers knew that they had to make significant improvements, but how far to push it, where was the point where the market would settle, all of that has gone away. The radical changes introduced in 2023 have proven their worth, particularly around retentions being pushed up. So reinsurers coming into this renewal are looking at probably is going to be one of the best underwriting years they've had in a long time. And many of them will exceed their cost of capital by a substantial margin. So that was a growth in confidence. 
which meant a growth in risk appetite that reinsurers felt that they could lean in, they could expose more of their capital, they wanted to write more. And that, I felt, rebalanced the whole situation much more. The supply side and reinsurers' willingness to put out capacity improved greatly, and that calmed the clients down quite a lot. So a return of confidence from reinsurers that felt that they had managed to get themselves into a good place was a really important factor and resulted in a calm renewal where orderliness and an element of tidiness returned. So far, it's looking like everyone got what they wanted. I asked David Preeb for his most concise precy of what happened at the renewals, and this was his response. Well, this year, I would sort of say we have a very responsive reinsurance market that materialized on January 1st. Ample capacity, a commercial approach to trading partnerships, and uh, continued underwriting vigor. So that would be sort of my quick summation. So we're all agreed. Everything's back to a much healthier place compared to last year. Let's have a little more detail on supply from David Preeb. Two things emerged. One, the dedicated reinsurance capital did bounce back. And that was really aided by very strong underwriting and investment earnings this year. And the unwinding of significant mark-to-market investment losses that hit the sector hard in 2022. So we estimate reinsurers are going to earn somewhere around plus 20% return on equity. So a really, really strong year for the market. Capital increases in the market were generally via existing reinsurers. And that was earnings, some capital raises, and also some internal reallocations, particularly those carriers that are both primary and reinsurance dedicated. As you know, there weren't any really new startups, so we don't have a new class of 2023. So right now, our estimate working with AMBES is that uh, dedicated reinsurance capital is about $461 billion, 12% increase over last year at 2022 from the traditional side. Alternative capital has also grown, albeit modestly by plus 3.7. So Overall, we have about a 10% increase of dedicated reinsurance capital. So really pleased with how the industry is shaping up. David's reiterating a lot of what David Flandre spoke of at the beginning, but he adds another key factor. Reinsurers have made good money in 2023, and retained profits are something we often overlook. But capital is only of use if an underwriter feels confident enough to put it to work. So here's David Preeb reinforcing the point James Vickers made earlier about a return of confidence. I think it's a combination of two things. First off, there had been a fair amount of investor fatigue with the losses that occurred five out of the last seven years. So I think people needed to see that there's profit opportunity in the business. And clearly, they're seeing that this year. The restructuring that took place by moving reinsurers exposure from say, the um, three to five-year return period, now up to the five to 10-year return period, it really took a significant amount of that frequency loss out of the reinsurance market. Unfortunately, it's still being retained by the primary market. That's a topic later to talk about. So from a reinsurance standpoint, I think everyone feels pretty confident that they've repositioned themselves at a level that they're out of the emerging loss frequency and really back into the job of managing tail risk to a greater degree. So happy days are here for reinsurers. They've got away from the painful attritional losses that were eating up their profits year after year and are making 20 plus percentage points returns. But clients are bearing the burden of that. For instance, Howden Tiger's report estimated that the changes in the market have added 10 whole percentage points to insurers' share of the cat loss burden in 2023. So where was demand coming from? It would be safe to assume that inflation meant that total insured values, TIVs, continued to rise, meaning that top layers needed to be topped up. 
But given the shift in the burden of pain between reinsurers and their clients, there must have been a strong client desire for reinsurers to come back and refill the gap that they'd opened up the year before. And another question is whether all this demand would evaporate at the new, much higher clearing price that reinsurance had now set itself. Back to David Flandreau. There is definitely demand in terms of top layers. There's a lot of demand in terms of lower working layers, although it's very difficult for people to obtain, clearly. But demand remains strong for reinsurance. Reinsurance, in spite of the fact that it's gone up significantly in price, is still a competitive form of contingent capital relative to other forms of capital like fixed income or equity. So fixed income and equity capital, the more traditional forms of capital, have also gone up in price. And so if you're an insurer, reinsurance remains a critical component of your capital structure. Demand hasn't abated particularly at all. That said, reinsurers have underwritten over the last two years at higher attachments. Cedents have seeded at higher retentions. And so cedents are looking to find other ways to use capital to mitigate for that fact. Some of it has to do with higher deductibles at the primary level. But yes, there remains strong demand for reinsurance. So it gets even better for reinsurers. They can make good returns, but buying their product is still cheaper for their customers than borrowing or selling equity. And a relatively bright spot for buyers was, at the high end, this renewed confidence and supply was available and ready to meet demand, where last year it was in tight supply right across the board. Here's David Preeb. We did see increased demand, mainly as insurers reassessed their retained risk thresholds in light of TIV growth. And probably more importantly, they also had adequate time to sort of budget for additional purchasing. So some carriers did buy significantly more limit to address TIV growth and inflation, both in 2022 and 2023. But the positive thing is that supply more than met that increased demand. So there was no signs of constraint in the cap market outside of that frequency exposed area within those programs. And here's James Vickers summarising a similar view in slightly different words. Demand in certain areas was met, more than adequately met, particularly for middle and upper layers on property cap business plenty of capacity, people would buy exactly what they wanted. There is a big demand for low-level frequency protection. And reinsurers are really very, very reluctant to provide that. The lessons of 2023 have shown that. They don't want to provide that cover. So those who really did need or want to buy cover at that level were looking at purchasing it in a slightly different way, some form of structured covers, taking time as well as frequency and severity of loss into account. So that area, there isn't any capacity in a traditional sense. That applies in the retro market as well. I think the retro product, if that was available at lower levels or maybe on an aggregate basis, that would be bought. <laughs> Reinsurers and retrocessionaires just don't want to give that cover. So anything remote was met with plentiful supply, but frequency exposed areas clearly emerged as the main point of difference between Cedent's wants and Reinsurers' red lines this renewal. Clients really wanted it, but reinsurers didn't want to sell it. Let's go into this point of friction in more detail. This is where the best brokers are showing their creativity and differentiating themselves. Yes, reinsurers were reluctant to give back the hard-won gains of 2023. But what were they prepared to do to help their best clients? And how did the squeeze affect sedent behaviour on their inwards books? Here's David Preeb, followed by David Flandreau. There were reinsurers that wanted to be responsive and helpful to clients, and, and I think they felt that they could structure a solution that met the client needs while still met their own overall portfolio construction. So there was a lot of interesting structures that emerged that I think uh, were sort of a win-win on both sides. 
albeit they were costly. So it certainly wasn't going at uh, below loss cost. And uh, often the newest solutions that were emerging were also more holistic, not just pure property, but you know, incorporating the broader aspects of a primary insurance company's portfolio. The larger carriers have a, a far deeper, stronger capital base. They were able to take on that increased potential loss, and they probably had greater ability to push price through their entire portfolio. The carriers that were challenged by this abrupt change in attachment point was particularly in the US, the middle market regional carriers that were most heavily impacted by severe convective storm and increased um, wildfire risk and water damage. And they don't really have the ability to drive price and also diversify their portfolio because they're in a far tighter geographic domain. So that burden fell more heavily on that segment of the market. Structured solutions are another important part of it. I mean, we've been exploring securitizing whole account cover into the restricted tier one debt markets in Europe. So transforming reinsurance into the subordinated debt markets if there's an arbitrage. So creative structured solutions like you're talking about are important. Changes in business mix, clearly, and you can see this if you look across the entire industry, there is no one direction where people are changing business classes from property to casualty or from reinsurance to specialty. Insurance companies are shifting their business mix quite rapidly, but it's company by company. There's no general trend, except that in lower layers, as you say, people are moving away from lower deductibles, and that's creating situations like we've had in California and Florida and elsewhere. So it's a market in flux, but we as brokers will come up with solutions, whether it's channeling new capital into the market via our investment bank, whether it's coming up with better structured solutions, whether it's creating new ILS capacity, or whether it's just negotiating around terms on traditional capacity. And that's going to happen in 2024, to be sure. A lot of relative winners and losers there, and an awful lot of creativity has clearly been unleashed. But great necessity is driving this great level of invention. Today's solutions sound like a series of painful adjustments to original risk appetite, business mix, and the adoption of relatively expensive transitional arrangements hammered out with reinsurers, often bringing in an insurer's whole account where previously only one class was involved. They don't sound like the sort of thing you'd want to add to your permanent reinsurance buying mix. Mr. Flandreau was already looking ahead to the rest of this year, but before we deal with the outlook for 2024, let's look at other points of friction. Back at Monte Carlo, reinsurers had voiced a newfound concern about the state of casualty, particularly US casualty. This had followed deterioration of some back-year reserves and added uncertainty following the sharp increase in inflation and the effect of the shutdown and reopening of court systems due to the COVID pandemic. There was an awful lot of talk, but how had this panned out when serious negotiations began in earnest? There's some major reinsurers who are looking to dial back, particularly on the US casualty market. They have concerns about the way that market is developing, despite the enormous improvement in the original underwriting. There are others who are more relaxed about it. So when you look at it in the round, commissions for US casualty did drop a little bit, but really not very much. A lot of the US primary carriers have got more confidence in their own underwriting than, in fact, the reinsurers have got. So there was quite a bit of, well, if you want to cut my commission too significantly, I'll just retain it, which is a sure sign that the primary companies are feeling confident about what they're doing. But you've got this other dynamic going on that worries the reinsurers is 
they're back years on what's happening. And as we all know, those 2040, 15 through to 2019 years are not performing well. But the impact on individual reinsurers is very different because they had very different portfolios at that time. So yes, in a broad sense, casualty is not the panacea that it was last year. But it's not fair to say that it's fallen completely out of favor because it hasn't. It always interests me that everybody obsesses about (laughs) commissions. And actually, what really matters is what's going on in the primary underwriting, where we know some people have pushed through and continuing to push through huge rate increases. And then there's been this limits collapse. People who were used to maybe writing $50, $100 million lines now put out a $10 million line. And that is a massive change, which you quite rightly said, two or three points in the Commission on a Quota Share Treaty is neither here nor there. On the casualty side, there was ample supply when market clearing prices were met and set. The critical thing that happened was everything was really directed at individual company performance and portfolio and experience. So it really became a very intense discussion around, I call it the dueling actuaries. But, you know, we spent an inordinate amount of time, a very valuable amount of time, really educating and making sure the reinsurers fully understood all the positive changes that took place on the underlying portfolios in terms of we've had four years of successive pricing improvement. A lot of carriers then also reduced gross line sizes and deductibles and other coverage features. And so we needed to make sure that played into the assessment on the forward-looking risk. Now, there remained continued concern as respects social inflation and real inflation. And that's going to be something that's going to continue to play out. But generally, I think um, we found that once we got through all that, the reinsurers came together with primary carriers. So we were able to deliver programs at relatively expiring terms. So it wasn't the massive reduction that people were talking about at Martin and Carla. Casualty underwriting at 1124 was definitely more discerning than it was last year because last year we were in a situation that was very fluid, particularly with property cat, as you say. But the predictions that were made by some for casualty, say, at Monte Carlo in terms of you know large double-digit rate increases and big concessions on seating commissions, those didn't materialize, neither in the London market excess of loss nor necessarily in the United States. Although when one says casualty, it's important to remember that casualty is a huge class comprising everything from everything's not property uh, yeah. workers comp the <laughs> auto third party liability london market casualty excess of loss dno it's almost like saying reinsurance it's such a big class but all in all even though underwriters were more discerning underlying rates for most long tail lines remain near historic highs and at the end people wrote it casualty was mostly flat a few a bit of symbolic posturing over maybe a couple of points of seating commission or something. And by the way, there's a big standard deviation around every data point. So everybody's experience will have been slightly different. But if you look at the entire casualty market in aggregate, no, those big increases didn't materialize. There was adequate supply. And the broader question I think is more interesting about reserve adequacy, about exposure calculations, about PFAS, about you know litigation trends, social inflation, all of those things are very interesting to study. They didn't equate to significantly higher casualty rates online at 1-1. So after all the huffing and puffing, that's all that needs to be said about casualty. Listening to our trio, it sounds like a healthy market to me. 
When there's a high level of uncertainty and new variables have been thrown into the mix, insurers are almost bound to disagree with other insurers, and reinsurers will disagree with each other and their cedents. Especially when you remember that their relative optimism or pessimism is likely to stem from how much or how little exposure they have to some of the not-so-good years of the past. What else is worth a mention before we start to look ahead? Well, back in Monte Carlo, James Vickers was the first to flag the issue of property per risk excels, which had suffered from poor performance, and he predicted were going to be in line for greater scrutiny. I asked if greater pressure on this segment of the treaty world was going to manifest itself in yet another wave of demand for facultative reinsurance. Here are answers from David Preeb and James Vickers. The overall risk market has been quite challenged for a number of years. There's continued to be elevated loss activity, large loss activity from man-made events and natural catastrophe events. Uh, so it's put a lot of strain on the property risk market and strain on primary insurance companies, particularly in the habitational lines and some other areas of the business that have been quite challenged. And so what's happening is that a number of carriers are looking to continue to de-risk their own portfolios. And so facultative has become a very effective way to manage some of those gross peak risks or risks where there are certain exposures that people want to moderate their exposure to. So we've seen a significant demand for increased facultative support. I think that will continue. And the supply is more constrained than what we're seeing right now on the property cap market. There are some markets, if you look in the Nordic market, for instance, the major commercial underwriters in those markets have been reining themselves in. They've been trying to address their front-end underwriting and risks that had never been placed outside the Nordic market are now coming out into the open so market. So markets that might get co-insured locally yep. are now well, coming the out. Other, the other thing, that, of course, that reinsurers are doing is they're cutting down on co-insurance. I mean, this has always been a problem in a local market. If you've got 20 primary companies and they can all co-insure the same risk. And you ride all of their risks. And you ride all their risks. That's not going to work when there's a loss. But the minute you put a co-insurance limit in and the other companies who can only write their net lines, you then create a demand that can only be met in terms of capacity by going to the open market. You heard it here first. The fact boom is still on. And it looks like capacity is still tighter than in other areas. But what are the market-wide outlook into 2024? Here's David Flandre to get us started. If the market remains finely balanced as it is right now in 2024, then that will portend a sustained hard market. If capital continues to enter at the rate that it's currently entering, and remember, we kind of have these superficial cutoffs in our industry, you know, these annual cutoffs. But they're just the, snapshots when we have a look. They're just snapshots. And the flow of capital is always ebbing or flowing. And right now it's flowing. If it continues to flow, if we have another record year of net new ILS issuance, if we have another capital recovery year, I mean, this is, this is a record year possibly for the NASDAQ, right? So if we have assets continuing to recover rapidly, if we have that pull-to-par effect on traditional balance sheets, then the supply of reinsurance capital will increase, capacity will increase, and the demand curve will shift. And that's just basic economics. With the usual caveats, my interpretation of what David Flander is saying is that things aren't likely to get much better, and they could get worse. So the more underwriting you can get done now, the happier you are likely to be in the long run. Over to James Vickers and then David Preeb. Well, I think that what we're seeing is that the market's come back into balance. I don't think buyers need to be so concerned about facing major, any more major rate increases. The real question is, what's going to be available in terms of rate reductions and also in broadening of terms and coverage and there may be a bit of product innovation? And that, 
as I said, it'll be a li- little bit too early to tell because, as I said, I think we've got reinsurers need to digest their 1-1 renewals and see how far off or they've exceeded or they've met their targets. And then what are they going to do about it? And this is where you get the fear versus greed <laughs> comes in. Based on the oversubscription of 1-1, I feel we're near the high watermark. Pricing may start to moderate as reinsurers seek to utilize some of this excess capital. You know, you got to remember, in many ways, pricing on mid-year renewals started to move more in 2022 So than the January 1 experiences. So in many ways, I think we're now sort of at a point where pricing is pretty normalized across enforced reinsurance contracts. So I, I sort of anticipate we should have a more competitive marketplace, greater optionality for clients to achieve their needs going forward. And that should result in moderating pricing. We'll see. You know, this business can change on a dime. But assuming nothing dramatic does happen, how might this moderation manifest itself? Which is likely to budge first? Rate or attachments? Here's Mr. Preeb again. It feels right now that reinsurers are pretty set that they're not going to step down back into the loss frequency area. So I think it will be more rate than structural changes. Rate moderation, a general lack of expectation of hardening. I haven't asked it out loud yet, but does this mean the hard market is officially over? And if so, where do we go from here? Over to David Flandro and James Vickers. It's possible to say that the hardening market is coming to an end, and certainly in certain classes. How long it stays hard is another question, and this is really the question that we're trying to answer. Can we sustain high rates for a long period of time, thereby attracting lots of investment capital? But then when you do that, that is the trigger for rates to go down. So it's a tricky question to answer. Last time around, when we had, I can still remember writing a research note about this a very long time ago in 2003 or four. I remember writing stronger for longer. And this was in the wake of the liability crisis and 9-11. And then we had Charlie, Ivan, Jean, Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. And rates really did stay high all the way up until maybe Hurricane Sandy. So the market has the ability to stay high for a long time. We are now approaching the inflection point on the S-curve. How long we stay up there is a question of capital supply. We're probably reaching a plateau, I think, in terms of, of where we are in pricing. I do think there's certain aspects that reinsurers will not give up on, and that is the retention issue. They allowed over a period of time retentions to remain static. They became very low. That, I think, is a hard line for reinsurers. Now, whether they're going to be a little bit more flexible on pricing and some of the other aspects around coverage around the edges, that, I think, will probably begin to play out during the rest of the year. But I just don't see any appetite on the retention issue. And that is a problem for clients because it leaves them with this, as we discussed earlier, this issue of attritional losses and how to manage it. The product they want is aggregate cover. And I just don't see that coming back easily. So we've hit the top, had to stop, and may possibly start to drop. And once again, we're back to the oldest question of them all. And the one I asked at the beginning, how long can the good times last? The quicker more capital comes in, the faster today's excellent conditions can deteriorate and a plateau can quickly erode to a slope, or even a sharp drop. But the answer to this question is unknowable, because it's contingent on behaviours and appetites that we can only see properly once they come into view. Something that could tip the dynamics and buyers' favour, and which we had got wind of at Monte Carlo, was some new startups in the offing. They yet start underwriting business, but asked if more capital raising and deployment was likely in 2024. Here's James Vickers, and then David Flandre. There's always a possibility 
when the results are good that people will wish to enter the market. Of course, we're an open market and the supply-demand dynamics have come back into play. I think the question for anybody coming in as a complete new startup is how they're going to access the business. As you've seen, as we've reported, a lot of things have been placed, they're overplaced. Exceedents are not looking for whole new players unless people are going to come and write in the difficult areas. Now, if you're coming in as a new a new reinsurer, are you going to want to suddenly provide cover in the areas where the rest of the market isn't? So it'll be interesting to see if whole new companies actually do come in or whether it will be a better route for investors coming into the market to go in giving capacity to existing players. One point of view was, I believe, best articulated by Charlie Goldie at the pre-Monte Carlo briefing. And Charlie said it very well. He said, listen, if we as an industry are going to attract new investors, we have to show them that we can maintain profitability for more than just one year. We've got to be able to have uh, several years, uh, if you will, of heightened pricing or better yet, of economic value add. That's return on invested capital exceeding whack. We've got to be able to do that for two or three years. Otherwise, the investors just aren't going to come back in. And that is correct. On the other hand, we are in an environment now where reinsurers are earning the highest level of economic value add than they have in a cycle. So you're getting returns on invested capital, I think, in the low teens. You've got many reinsurers with weighted average costs of capital that are lower than that. And that means all other things equal, your share price goes up. And that's very attractive for investors. So yes, we are starting to see investors coming in. We've seen, as you put it, 17 or 18 billion of new capital that's come in so far. But this isn't the end. There's more capital yet to come in this cycle. It may just be that the curve in terms of capital entry was more steep immediately after 9-11 and and after Katrina. How contingent is that capital on these terms and conditions being maintained, do you feel? I think if you're coming in for a five-year investment, you're picking the point in the cycle where you're going to get the best initial returns at the lowest discount if that makes any sense. So on a net present value basis, if you put the capital in now, five years from now, the capital that you put in now is going to earn a high return and that's going to be a relatively undiscounted return. The future is always more difficult to predict, but if you're making a capital commitment, it just feels like the time is now. A quick jargon buster. WAC is weighted average cost of capital. So here's the other conundrum. We've probably never had it so good, but if you wait long enough to prove it, you may have missed the best of it by the time you come in. And listen to this further exchange with David Flandreau, reminding us of something that underwriters from this century's ultra-low interest rate environment may never have learned, and something even very senior underwriters schooled in the 1980s and 1990s may have forgotten. Underwriting for float can be very profitable when investment returns are favourable. If you can get a 4% or a 6% investment return... You know, a 90% combined ratio can give you a 20% ROE. Yeah, and you, and you don't even, need to be under 100. Even. In right. theory, you don't even need to be under 100. There was an old formula that we used to use 20 years ago, which was 103.5% combined, net technical reserves to equity 35 to 1, investment return 5%, ROE equals 12. That just hasn't been possible for 10 years. It is now. The counter argument to that is that costs of capital are higher, But right now, we think that returns on invested capital, which are a function in part of investments, are higher than cost of capital. That asset side is something that I would want. I always mention the asset side, but that's something I wouldn't want to be missed. Absolutely. So, yes, again, we may find somebody who's more of a macroeconomic underwriter than a a case-specific one might say, you know, on a macro terms, 
we should write more. We should be writing more and we should be writing to a higher combined ratio in a market I, like this. I'm not sure about this, but I don't think that that's yet filtered down into the line underwriter's decision. I think the line underwriters are just being told, underwrite as you always have. For a profit. For a profit. Yeah, but don't worry about the asset side. But the investors are being told, we are underwriting this premium, which is additionally lucrative because we can earn 5% on the float. And that's just the reality that we're in. So we, we should remember that. A good place to end, I think. It seems obvious to me that the reinsurance market is back and it's exceedingly healthy and looking at the prospect of a series of vintage years ahead. Everything's aligned. Capital, demand, terms and conditions, investment returns and continued improvement in the quality of underlying insurance portfolios still likely to be working through into the medium term. How long the good times stay will largely be down to the behaviour of individual actors from here on. With strong investment returns on offer, some may be tempted to go for volume and maybe dip a little lower and provide the cover that students so clearly want to buy. And if and when they decide to break ranks, the broking community will be all over them. Plenty of others won't want to rock the boat, but might go along with a little easing of rate from here on. Others still will start to contract and return capital to investors at the first signs of any kind of softening. And that's what makes a market. Thanks so much to the two Davids and James. Do make sure you read all their excellent renewals materials. I've put all the links in the podcast notes. I wish you all a happy and prosperous 2024. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>